0: on the overhead behind me next week. You'll need your Bibles. We're going to be digging into the Lord's teaching on prayer in Matthew chapter 6. But today serves as an introduction. And if you're like me, and if you're an inquisitive person, and you like to know why somebody's doing what they're doing, and if you want to know why I'm going to be leading us into a series on becoming a people of prayer, well, to answer that inquisitive nature that you might have is why we're introducing it like we are. I'm going to give you five reasons why we're going to study prayer. In Luke chapter 11, verse one, it says, now Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. You know, last year, Denise and I went to a conference almost a year ago this week. and the conference took place in Longmont, Colorado, just north of Denver. Now neither of us had ever been to Colorado before in our lives. And we both love mountain scenery. So when we drove around Longmont to get to our conference, we were awestruck by these snow-capped mountains all around us. They were higher than any mountains I've ever seen in my life. They were breathtaking as they filled the horizon. But about halfway through this conference, I noticed a very peculiar phenomenon. It was that all the people that lived in Longmont, as they were driving around and as they were going into and out of stores, none of them were looking at the mountains. I mean, Denise and I, our our heads are going back and forth. We don't even know which mountain to look at, but all these people that live there seemed to no longer be interested in their beauty. Friends, this is not unique to Longmont, Colorado. In fact, it occurs in churches and Christians around the world. We tend to lose the sense of the beauty and the majesty and the wonder of God in the midst of being surrounded by Him. Friends, prayer, now listen, prayer begins the recovery process. It shuttles our knowledge of God back into its rightful mystery, which reminds us who really is the one who lives on high. Prayer reminds us of our own need, and prayer lifts our eyes and our souls back onto the heights of God's glory. And it centers us on the God who cares for us with tenderness, grace, concern, and power. This morning, we're beginning a journey through the Lord's teaching on prayer. We're going to do this verse by verse. We're going to look deeply. We're going to look intensely at how Jesus taught us to pray. And I'm assuming, you know, that's a dangerous thing to do, but I'm assuming that none of us has yet climbed to the summit of prayerfulness. And that all of us still have a lot to learn about why God gave us this gift called prayer and why we tend to underappreciate it. So today, by way of introduction, I want to give you five reasons from my heart. This is a personal pastoral sermon to you, the church that I pastor, why I've chosen to lead us toward becoming a people of prayer. I mean, come on, we've got 65 other books in the Bible that we could tackle. Well, I did James. Actually, 64. I forgot about Haggai, that 15 week series. Why are we doing prayer? Well, let me go through your outline. You'll see those uh, those some blanks in there. Let me give you the first one. Number one, we are a church that is generally, you ready? Weak in prayer. You know, several months ago, we identified three glaring weaknesses of our church that we must address. One of them was prayer. You see, prayer's not much talk about at Cornerstone, at least not on the level of the Word of God. And by that I mean that we don't hunger as a church to learn and to strive in God's presence through prayer as much as we seem to hunger for God's word. Believe me, I am grateful for your hunger for God's word. I share it tremendously, deeply. But we need to hunger for God's truth in prayer as well. Swiss theologian Hans Kuhn, in his 702-page volume called On Being a Christian, he did not include a single chapter... Or even an index entry on prayer. Here it is, on being a Christian, 702 pages, and not one blurb about prayer. You know, he later regretted this oversight and explained that because of the publisher's deadlines and pressure from the Vatican censors, he simply forgot about prayer. I wonder if a somewhat similar thing could be said about Cornerstone Evangelical Free Church. This isn't to say that we have no people praying in our church, because we certainly do. In fact, a few examples, we have a group of women. Did you know they meet every single Tuesday and they pray? They pray for this church. They pray for their families. We have a few people who come early to church. Did you know that? They get here by 8 o'clock or 7.30 and they pray for these services. We even have phones that go off because people are praying. And we have a prayer partner ministry, which which prays during this service. Chris Sorsch is right now in the main office praying that you would hear these words and that I would speak the truth. We have prayer warriors who linger long in the presence of God. But a hungry listen, a hungry and soul-thirsting community of prayer does not, com- does not characterize this church. In fact, if we were honest, perhaps most of us, maybe this is you, would admit to a shallow, superficial prayer life that sputters along and lacks intimacy with power with God. But friends, the church, and I'm going to teach you a so simple principle. I love that. Don't be embarrassed as all of our eyes are now looking at you. This is nothing to be humiliated about. It's probably something very important. But the church in its infancy, in Acts 2.42, everybody listen and look at this. It says this behind me on the screen, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. Friends, listen, did you ever realize that these were people that had just come to faith? Prayer is not... A sign of maturity as much as it's a sign of spiritual health. A deep, devoted prayer life, friends, is not just for those who are long in the tooth in Christ. We've got to develop this health in our church. We've got to get it in our lives. In fact, it's a command. Paul commands in 2 Corinthians, the church of Corinth. You also must help us by prayer so that by, so that many will give thanks in our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. So listen, here's what I just said very simply, prayer, deep prayerfulness is not so much a sign of maturity, it's a sign of health. But it leads to maturity. Epaphras, who is one of you, a servant of Christ Jesus, greets you. Always, look at how he lived, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers, that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. Friends, listen, number one, we must become a healthy praying people. Honestly, and I'll admit it with you, how many of us, raise your hand, are weak in prayer? Look around. We've got a lot of work to do. Number two reason, Jesus modeled a life of prayer. Why are we undertaking this series? Because number two, Jesus modeled a life of prayer. Listen to this. Even godless atheistic societies have adapted prayer to how they want their people to live. Here's from 1950. In the fervor of communism, the leading Russian newspaper gave this advice to its readers. You're not going to believe this. Here's what it says. If you meet with difficulties in your work or suddenly doubt your abilities, listen, think of him, of Stalin. And you will find the confidence you need. If you feel tired in an hour when you should not, think of him, of Stalin. And your work will go well. If you're seeking a correct decision, think of him, of Stalin. And you will find that decision. Friends, that's a quote. It's distorted, it's idolatrous, it's disastrous. But that's their form of prayer. But Jesus modeled a life of prayer. He didn't just pour information into people's heads. He demonstrated and modeled what he taught. He did this with prayer as well. In fact, after preaching and ministering to crowds, Jesus would often withdraw to spend time in prayer with his father. Whether it was a lofty mountainside, a private garden, or desolate places, he continually spent time in prayer with his father. In Luke 6, we learned that Jesus spent the entire night in prayer before selecting his 12 apostles. The verse that we read at the beginning, he took Peter... uh, Actually, that's coming up, but he took Peter, James, and John. He took them up on a mountain. I love this. He took them up on a mountain to pray, and as he was praying... His appearance, it says the appearance of his face was altered and his clothing became dazzling white. Most of us remember that his clothing became dazzling white. Did you know that it was as he was praying? His face altered. It's not the modern form of plastic surgery. So don't think about that way. But his face was altered because he was in the presence of the glorious one. He would get up early before dawn. He'd get away to pray. He was such a man of prayer. So intimate with God that Luke records in our verse. We read that as Jesus was praying in a certain place. And when he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. I love that. No one prayed like Jesus did. No one did. John taught his disciples to pray. Rabbis commonly taught their followers to pray. But the rabbis would usually initiate the lessons. Here, they heard Jesus praying. They never heard such intimacy. They never saw such oneness, such comfort with the Father. And all of a sudden, they came to him. They said, Jesus, teach us to pray. They hungered for that. Friends, do you want to learn how to pray? Listen. Because I don't mean by that, do you want a formula? To learn how to unlock the mysteries of prayer. I'm not giving you a formula in this series. Because I don't think that a formula exists. Do you want an inward desire? That hungers for intimacy with God. That prayer both creates and satisfies. That's my goal in this series. That all of us would be captured. With that desire to be intimate with God. To be able to speak to Him. And know that our prayers are being cherished. Answered, welcome, and pleasing. I want to yearn for that depth of relationship with God. It's a reason why we are embarking on this journey to become a people of prayer. But that's not the only two reasons. I'm just pouring out my heart to you. The third reason, as I was studying this, and I said, why are we wanting to do this series? Is I, I realized that Jesus taught us the kind of prayer that empowers us to live in the kingdom of God. Now listen, this prayer in Matthew chapter 6 is couched within the Sermon on the Mount. So this prayer has something to do with this fantastic and incredible sermon. In fact, John Stott says that the entire Sermon on the Mount, including this teaching on prayer, creates what he calls a Christian counterculture. Now listen, I didn't say Christian subculture. You do know the difference, right? A Christian subculture tries to create a bubble of isolation safely ensconced away from the world, but a Christian counterculture seeks to go into the world with the power of kingdom living. This Christian countercultural force is the kingdom of heaven, and it's profoundly, listen, and dramatically disturbing both to our lives and to our culture. In fact, one writer, when he's embraced with the possibility of writing a commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, he wrote this. He says, I am both drawn to them, the sermon, three chapters, and shamed by them. The brilliant light draws me like a moth to a spotlight, but the light is so bright that it sears and burns. You know why he said that? He said it because you can't feel comfortable Listening and studying the Sermon on the Mount. Why would we? Here we go. Number one. We should rejoice when persecuted. Have you ever rejoiced when persecuted? You should know that your anger will be judged. And it's on a level of murder. That's disturbing, friends. Or that your lust is that it's just as much of an adulterous thing as committing it physically. Or that we shouldn't resist evil people, or that we should give to anyone who begs from us, and never ever turn away from anyone the money they ask to borrow. That's the Sermon on the Mount. That's just a few excerpts. How is this to tap it all off? You therefore must be perfect, as your Heavenly Father is perfect. How comforting is that? No wonder the crowds were astonished. You see, Jesus says you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. What he's doing, friends, is he's driving us to the utter bankruptcy of our own righteousness. That's the entire purpose of the Sermon on the Mount of which this prayer is part of. It's to drive us to the fact that none of our righteousness will be enough. Which is why he says, blessed, in verse 3, are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. You know what that word poor means? The poor in spirit are those who are beggarly poor. Who realize that they are spiritually bankrupt. And that they must have help from an outside source. You see, listen, why study prayer? Because prayer keeps us glad in our poverty. And empowered to live victoriously in Christ, prayer is the powerful, life-transforming language of those who live in the, in the kingdom of God. Michael Friedlander, who wrote in 1890 the book, The Jewish Religion, he said about prayer, it has the salutary effect of purifying, refining, and ennobling our heart. It banishes evil thoughts and thus saves us from much pain and sorrow friends the lord's teaching on prayer teaches us how to live in the kingdom of god that's three reasons i was on a roll this week so i came up with two more here's your fourth jesus showed us the intimacy that comes from learning to pray you know william Barclay, who is not without his theological problems but i love his writing He wrote that most people have difficulty in putting their thoughts into words, and still more people have difficulty in putting their feelings into words. So what is prayer for? The answer to the Jew was that it was not so much an emergency appeal. Now listen, listen, this is how a Jew thought. Prayer was not so much an emergency appeal and need as it is a continuing and unbroken conversation and fellowship with God. The Apostle John, in his gospel, he wrote that in the beginning was the word, and the word was God, and the word was with God. Do you know what that word with means? It's a preposition in the Greek. Are you ready? I'm going to teach you something. I don't know why it's not taught more in Christianity But to me, it's mind-blowingly awesome to know what that word means. It means toward or facing, like to move toward another, T-O-W-A-R-D. You see, it expresses the thought, that word with, that in the word, Jesus, there was a motion or tendency towards and not merely association with God. Let me explain it a little bit more because I know that sounds complicated. It points to reciprocal, conscious, conscious, communion the going out of love toward god that word with means that jesus was face to face with his father in unbroken intimate fellowship all of eternity and so when we get to the cross and we see the only time that jesus cried out in anguish was when his father turned away from his son because his son bore our sins. And holiness cannot have fellowship with sinfulness. That was when Jesus experienced for the first time ever a broken fellowship with his father. See, Jesus showed us the intimacy that comes from learning to pray. It's prayer. This is prayer. It's the experiencing of intimacy with God. And it practically drips from the pages of John chapter 17. Here's some excerpts. Father, Jesus prays. This is a prayer. The hour has come. Glorify your son that the son may glorify you. When did this sermon take place? When did this teaching take place? It took place after they enjoyed the Lord's Supper hours before he was crucified. It goes on. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father... Glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Notice the intimacy. All mine are yours and yours are mine. The glory that you have given me I have given to them that they may be one even as we are one. I made known to them your name and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them and I in them. Friends, God wants intimate lives. To be rejoicing in him. Prayer is the vehicle for that intimacy. But I have one more reason why we're embarking on a series to become a people of prayer. And it's this one. The Jewish people of the time of Jesus had an extremely high opinion of prayer. Now listen, I don't know where you're at with your understanding of Jews. But a lot of times when we talk about Jews, when we hear about Jews, we hear or talk about something negative. But the Jews were characteristically a praying people. The Holy One, said the rabbis, yearns for the prayers of the righteous. This is why Psalm 145, 18 says the Lord is near to all who call on him. To all who call on him in truth. In fact, the Jews had a saying. That the one who sur- prays surrounds his house with a wall of iron. To them, prayer was a channel through which the strength and grace of God were brought to bear on the troubles and problems of life. How much more for Christians? 1 John 5 says, This is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. Friends, the Jew believed that prayer was a weapon of the mouth and that it was mighty. They taught that God was never bored by the continual coming of his children and unlike we tend to be bored with those who visit us periodically in fact they had a parable for this here's the parable a man visits his friend and his friend greets him cordially placing him on the couch beside him he comes again and he's given a chair he comes again and he receives a stool And he comes a fourth time. The friend says, the stool is too far off. I cannot fetch it for you. Friends, that was a parable that the rabbis would share to be able to teach that God is never like that. You can come a hundred, a thousand, even more times to him and you will always get the couch. God's not like this friend who, whenever Israel knocks at the door of God's house, the Holy One rejoices. Some rabbis held that prayer is greater in God's sight than sacrifice. In fact, in any synagogue, wherever you were, it was the rule to pray facing toward Jerusalem. And if you were in the temple, then you needed to face toward the uh, Holy of Holies. But once the temple was destroyed in A.D. seventy, sacrifice became impossible for the Jews. So listen, prayer became the supreme sacrifice and offering. They had daily prayers at 9 o'clock in the morning, at noon, and at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. But friends, listen. And as we're going to see next week, as we begin our study in Matthew 6, the Jews had transformed this great practice, and doctrine of prayer into something else that had stripped it of its power, meaning, and intimacy. You know, there was a doctoral student at Princeton who asked this question. What is there left in the world for original dissertation research? And Albert Einstein replied to him, Find out about prayer. Somebody must find out about prayer. I think Einstein was on to something, and we need to be a people that find out about prayer. Let me close with this. How many of you truly desire, no hands, how many of you truly desire to live a deep, powerful life of prayer? And friends, for most of us, we saw the hands go up. We're going to need to change. And change does not come out without intentionality. It never has and it never will. If you're going to change, then something must provoke the change. So let me ask you, please, this is your assignment. Don't think I've ever given you one from the pulpit before. I doubt any of you will do it. Therefore, I shall pray for your suffering. <laughs> I will never do that. Would you please commit, please, to studying the prayers of Jesus throughout the New Testament within this series. Looking specifically, even today or tomorrow, the next time you open God's beautiful word for your own edification of your soul, look deeply and longly, longly, longingly at Matthew chapter 6. And we may find that becoming a people of prayer is more rewarding than we could ever have imagined. Amen? Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Lord, even though this was an introduction, it's way outside my comfort zone. Lord, I love to just be buried in one text. But Lord, this was necessary in my view. Lord, I want our people to know why we're doing what we're doing. Lord, we're weak in prayer. We've admitted it. So many hands, almost the entire sanctuary went up, Lord, admitting that to you. Lord, we pray for help. We need to become people That pray, we need to become a community of prayer. And Lord, I pray that you will teach us, invigorate, provoke, motivate, lead us, Lord, into a deep, intimate, powerful, rich prayer life, one that will endure to our final day, Lord. Pray for that. Pray that you'd give us wisdom and insight from your word and that the word of God would transform us where simple words cannot. We ask for that in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand this morning? I'm going to ask Steve Shetlick, one of our elders, to not only close and dismiss you in a blessing, but to one more time pray and for, for the blessings of the mothers in this sanctuary. So would you do the honors?